Father, we thank you this morning, and as we've already prayed, there are so many needs in the world around us and, and so many difficulties. But Father, we pray that in each case, that there may be opportunity to minister. We're thankful for those who on our behalf go in the name of Christ to places that we can't go. So we're thankful even for this pastor who turned to help and to share Christ and Christ's love for these people. We're thankful for people like Samaritan's Purse that will go in and set up hospitals. And so, Father, as we pray for them, may we also support and continue to pray for those that, that need the help. And, Father, we think of our own tragedies in our own country and in through North America. And, Father, in places where people won't walk the streets, we thank you for those that will go in with ministries to share the gospel with them. And, Father, that you are concerned and care for what happens in our streets and in our cities and in our rural areas. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, may you calm our minds, help us to focus in on what you have for us, to push aside the crowded worries and thoughts from the past week and the week to come. And we thank you for this opportunity just to pause in the week to focus on you and what you might have for us. In Christ's name we ask, amen. So, this past Sunday, when we got home last Sunday from our, our time down here, our son Matthew waits for us to get home. So we sat together and we had our meal together, and he began to chat a little bit about he's looking for a different job and putting out resumes and, and some of the struggles and things going on. And all of a sudden, I had this very strange feeling come over me. Has anyone ever experienced deja vu? Right? Yeah. Like, like you've done this before or something like that? Well, there's an estimated, um, by the Cleveland Institute, they estimate that 97% of people experience deja vu at least once in their lifetime. So if you haven't experienced yet, there's still hope. Um, but, quoting, this condition, which translates in French to already seen, is a transitory sensation of having already lived to a totally identical situation at some point in the past. Deja vu is a, a false sense of familiarity. Dr. Karua says, your brain creates a sensation as if you have lived a certain situation before, but you're unable to retrieve it from your memory and cannot identify the actual situation. Well, if Jonah thought he was having deja vu as we begin chapter 3, he really wasn't. What Jonah was doing was living out the consequences, and he was living it out in real time. And he was fortunate, because as we open up chapter 3, we find that God gives Jonah a mulligan, a do-over, a second chance. You'll recall it says in Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah, Jonah ran in another, the other direction. You'll recall Jonah ran down to Joppa, and in Joppa, he went down to a ship at the port, and then in the ship, he went down into the bowels below deck to run from God. And then as the ship set sail into the Mediterranean, God sends along a storm that even scares our seasoned sailors. 
And as they're up on deck dealing with the storm, somehow Jonah manages to fall asleep through the storm below deck. And ironically, the mariners on deck become very, very anxious. And they begin to cry out to their various gods looking for help, all to no avail. And and while the captain goes and gets Jonah and he urges Jonah to pray, Jonah simply rubs the sleep out of his eyes. And eventually he joins the others up deck as they partake in the old custom of casting lots. And upon losing, Jonah comes up with this wonderful, brilliant idea. Uh, Just pick me up and throw me into the raging sea. That will stop everything. Again, ironically, we witness here these pagan men show more concern for the soul of one Jewish runaway from God than Jonah did for all of Nineveh. Unable to outrow the storm, the sailors finally consent under duress and they take Jonah and they throw him in. And as Jonah's body splashes into the sea, the raging storm begins to calm. But there's another stirring. The stirring this time is in the hearts of our seafarers as they humble themselves before God and they begin to offer sacrifices and they begin to worship the God behind the storm, Yahweh. Now, if this was a play and you and I were watching this play, the curtains would close. And as the curtains closed, the scene would change. And that scene would open up to Jonah sinking to a watery grave. And as he sinks, he calls out to God, which leads to a prayer of thanksgiving as God rescues him. But in that thanksgiving prayer, there lacks any repentance for the, for the disobedience of the prophet. And remember in that prayer, he promises to make vows and sacrifices. Which obviously didn't happen in the fish. But as you read the book, it doesn't happen anywhere in the book. You'll not find a record of that happening. The next, Jonah is vomited up onto dry land. Which was likely a comment on his willingness or half-hearted willingness of being neither hot nor cold about this idea of going to Nineveh. And then from a human standpoint, there's, there's likely a gap here in Scripture. It stands to reason that our reluctant prophet needs a little time to rest and to revive himself. But at some point after the vomiting of Jonah onto the dry land, God visits Jonah again. Chapter 3 now, verse 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It is here that we left Jonah last week. The instructions to go to Nineveh. And reluctant and unrepented, Jonah begins his journey. No deja vu, real life mulligan, and he begins to travel to Nineveh. Granted, now he's probably several weeks behind schedule from the original call, but he does go. And I want to pause here because I want to address speculation. Speculation made by many concerning the biography of Jonah. It's true, there is evidence that in, in Assyria, 
they worshipped a god called Dagon. And Dagon was half man and half fish. It originated out of the Philistines and made its way through Assyria. But Nineveh worshipped all kinds of gods. There was something like five or six main gods and then some thousands beyond that. So did Dagon, the worship of this half-fat fish, half-man god, influence the response of the Ninevites? Maybe, but there's no direct linkage in our text to say that's true. Some commentators go on to speculate that Jonah's skin may have been bleached from the acid in the fish, making him look eerily like some modern-day zombie. Well, that might be great for special effects in a movie production, but again, the text does not give us an indication one way or another. Nor is there an indication, as some postulate, that the fish incident preceded Jonah to Nineveh. So the idea is that as he rested, this story of him being swallowed by this great fish and that he beat the fish on his home turf and was spewed out onto dry land, that somehow that story made it to Nineveh first. So that when this zombie-looking prophet arrived and started to speak, everybody started to listen to him and, and, and responded very quickly to him. Again, it's, it's not in the text. So I want to remind you, well, we need to be cognitive of the context and the context can, historical and geographical context can help us interpret scripture. We need to remember not to add to the text. We neither want to, the text to say more, nor do we want to say less than what the text actually says or what the author intended. So just a caution, I came across that a lot. I'm content to say we serve and worship a miraculous God. Now back to our unrepentant and reluctant prophet, to whom, despite all of that, God chose to have compassion on him and God chose to work through him, flaws and all. But this time, Jonah at least gets it partially right. Jonah rises up and he goes to Nineveh. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 3. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was an exceedingly, uh, uh, sorry, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Now this, this verse, as simple as it seems, divides up into three parts, and we're going to deal with it in three parts. We're going to deal with the first part of the verse, and then we're going to deal with the end of the verse, and then we're going to come back to the middle of the verse. I like how the New Living Translation puts the beginning. It's very simple and to the point. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what Jonah did. Tired of running and tired of fighting, Jonah goes. Now, spoiler alert, just in case you haven't read the whole book yet. When I was a kid, I... I, I, um, Oh, sorry. I lost myself here. Jonah goes. When I was a kid, I I pictured this obedience. Now I remember where I was going. I pictured this obedience by Jonah, much like a child. 
So you remember when you're a child, we've all been children one time or another, but remember when you were a child and you were told to clean your room and you'd drag your feet at it and you'd drag your feet at it and then either mom and dad might say something or you begin to think to yourself, wait a second, if I don't clean my room, I'm going to miss out on dessert. So you don't necessarily clean your room because you're supposed to clean your room. You reluctantly clean your, clean your room so that you can have dessert. Jonah was the same way. He's going now, not because he really wants to, but he's reluctantly going because of the experience he had. Hence, we refer to Jonah as the reluctant prophet or the pouting prophet. So he goes and he obeys, but not willingly, not of an open heart. Now to the end of the verse. And again, I'm going to quote from the New Living here. A city so large that it took three days to see it. Or as the CSB says, a three-day walk. See, we'll learn in chapter 4 that the city is at least 120,000 people. There are theologians that will argue the inhabitants are, and we'll talk about it when we get there, the inhabitants of the city are actually closer to a half a million, more like the size of London. Either way, it was, it was a large city. And, and the city proper had a wall around it. And that wall, that stone wall, was 13 kilometers long to walk it, or about 8 miles. Plus, outside the city, there's about 64.5 kilometers or 40 miles of what modern-day politicians would call urban sprawl. I would imagine it would be much like what we see around London. Small populations existing, dotting the outside of London. And, and there are small farms dotting all the way around London. And there's industry around London. And there are shops and car, uh, commerce. And all that shop and commerce and farms all go to supporting the urban population. It was a, a massive area. The land mass of Nineveh would be like driving from Strathroy through to Ingersoll. Fortunately, the text doesn't indicate to us whether the reference here was to the city proper or to the metropolitan area. But he was ministering to a lot of people. It just tells us that it was going to take him three days to walk through it. Now to the middle. And there's some great discussion about the middle part of this verse in the text. Let's read it as we see in the ESV and and many other translations. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Or as the notation that is in the ESV, the Christian Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible, and the New Living Bible, or New Living Translation, a great city to God. See, the word exceedingly in, in, in the ESV can be translated Elohim, a name of God. I, I am led to believe the correct translation of the verse should be this. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was a great city to God, three days journey in breath. And the reason I pick that translation of the verse is this. It's the theological context of the book. See, Jonah is all about God's said, His loving kindness to the sailors, his loving kindness to Jonah, 
and, and then his loving kindness to the citizens of Nineveh. Let me read to you from Mark Yarborough's commentary on Jonah. God cared about Nineveh. In God's sight, Nineveh was great because it had people. Yes, they were wicked and evil. Yes, they had problems. They abused other people and were immoral. But God cared for them. Smith and Page, authors of Jonah in the New American Commentary, write, Clearly God cared deeply about the Ninevites, whom he had created in his image. Therefore he sent the prophet with a message that would ultimately lead to their turning. The author seems to set the reader up for something to come by emphasizing that the Lord cared about the Ninevites, while Jonah did not. Even Canadian theologian Jay Sklar echoes the same thoughts, that God cared for the city because it was full of people, people that bear his image, people like you and I. And Israel was expected to be a light. Israel was expected to be a beacon of hope to all the nations. In Genesis 12.3, we read, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this isn't, this isn't necessarily just future tense. Gentiles were, were not just waiting for the birth of Christ before they'd have an opportunity to come to Yahweh. Y'all, the book of Obadiah was a rebuke against the nation of Edom. The book of Nahum, like Jonah, was another rebuke to the Ninevites. Then there's records of Gentiles who indicated that they believe in Yahweh and they praise Him. Haram, the king of Tyre in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Then we have the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. Then in Daniel chapter 6, we have King Darius of the Medes. And don't forget Nebuchadnezzar, who was punished by God, repented and then was restored to his senses. And then he praised God. See, sometimes I wonder in our technical wonder and, and gadgets and our civilization today that we, through well, also our mass media portrays people of past civilizations to be stupid, that we really sell people of past civilizations short. I don't know exactly how much they knew or how much they comprehended, but as I read the scripture, there is there there seems to be an indication of interacting. There's there's this sense, I guess I could put it, this sense that people around Israel, the nations of the world, knew who Yahweh was. Just like today, people around the globe know Jesus. They know about Jesus. Many do, but they still reject Jesus. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So yes, there's a sense which Christ blesses all of us and that opens the door for the Gentiles for salvation. But we still see in the Old Testament people coming to God that were not Jewish. So while Israel was God's chosen people, I don't believe it meant God was not at work in the hearts of Gentiles. 
So keep those thoughts in mind as we look at Jonah and his task and look at verse 4 as he heads into Nineveh. So Jonah began to go into the city, going, going a day's journey when he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not a lot to go on there, is there? In the Hebrew, the word used for overthrowing is the same word used in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll remember what happened to those two towns and they didn't fare well. Few of the, a few of the translations, a few of them spare the reader having to look up anything and simply state what's going on as the Christian Standard Bible does. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished or destroyed. In Hebrew, Jonah has a five-word message. That five-word message gets a lot of debate in theological circles. Some scholars believe that this is just a summary of what Jonah had said. That the message would have had more to it. Would have told them who the message was from, and he would have given them a sense of hope in the proclamation that if they turned from their sinful ways and called out to God... It would have given him some hope. But however, the implication of the text as Jonah preached is that Jonah preached a one-sided message. Five words. God is coming for you. Or if you prefer, God is going to get you. God's going to get you. Well, one-sided messages are seen in the Old Testament. Most often, these messages are coupled with a call to repentance and a call for hope that if a person will change their heart, God will forgive. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In Isaiah, same type of message. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So regardless of the messaging... If there was something excluded from the text and we don't have it, or if Jonah only preached five words, what happened here is nothing short of a miracle. God was at work in the hearts and minds of these people. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, does, does this mean that Everybody in Nineveh got saved. That all 100% came to faith. Well, it doesn't have to mean that. Think of an election here in Canada. At the, at the announcing the winning party, they'll say something like this. Well, the people of Ontario supported candidate A, and he won by a landslide. Well, does that mean everybody supported candidate A? No, but a majority of people did. So this doesn't have to mean 100%, but 
A majority of people, there was this great revival. And, and 40 days isn't a long time. It isn't, isn't a long time to get the message out. Especially in a pre-social media, pre-cell phone, pre-computer technology time. But as they heard, the citizens of Nineveh started to show outward signs of cultural repentance. When I read this text and, and, and went through this story as a child, I remember having in my minds at this point that all the people of Nineveh turned around and put on potato sacks or chicken feed sacks. But more or less, that's what happened. Instead of their normal clothes, they walked out and they put on this coarse material, much like burlap. And, 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 and this material was used by the poorer people inside their society because it's what they could afford to clothe themselves with. I think of the Depression here in Canada. In some parts of our country, potato sacks and, and chicken feed sacks became an item to trade as families tried to clothe their children because it would wear and it was easy to get hold of and it was cheap, but it was humbling. A question, then, were these people truly saved when they repented? But salvation is always based by, on grace by faith. Grace by faith with the knowledge that God has given to us at that point. Think of Abraham. When God made a covenant with him, what do we read in Genesis fifteen six? And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. By grace, through faith, Abraham believed. Another reason I believe that they were saved comes from Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, where Jesus exclaims this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. How they got saved, what message they had, what other information they may have have may remain a mystery. And that's why some believe that Jonah just gives us a summary of his message. But Nineveh responded. And they responded based on whatever they had and they responded with repentance. And it's okay if we don't have all the information. Because we know in, in the process of salvation that God must draw men to himself. It's God that initiates the process. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. So I, I get there'll be some who disagree with my conclusion and they'll state things like, oh, they're just escaping the judgment. That's why they wanted to believe. There was no lasting imprint of their salvation. I have quick two, th uh, quick two thoughts on that. After World War I, or two, in 1946, the weekly worship attendance by Canadian adults was 67%. I went to look for the stat today. I cannot even find that stat in Canadian statistics based on weekly worship. It's much easier to find the stat on uh, attending church at least once a month. And now Canadian adults... Once a month, 23% of the population will darken the door of a church. 
So the fact that there's no lasting imprint a hundred or so years later in the culture doesn't really bother me. It doesn't mean that these people didn't repent and didn't come to faith. Especially when I think of the culture that I grew up in versus the culture I live in today. Another question that comes to mind, and people point out this, is that they cannot find in the records of Nineveh, in the records of Assyrian history, any reference to this spiritual awakening. Well, that's disappointing. It's no great cause for concern. Non-biblical archaeologists, non-biblical historians did not believe in the biblical King David until just a few years ago. The second thing is we should frame it a little differently. That they have not found anything in the Assyrian records as of yet. I was listening in biblical archaeology you would think, anybody got an idea how many, what percentage of Israel has been dug up in regards to biblical archaeology? Any idea? Would you think 15, 20, 30, 40%? Lower? Yeah, 5%. And of that 5%, there's a new technology that they began to use on some old sites and found out they were throwing out much more than they realized. So I think it's safe to say they might not have found it just yet. The other thing we have to remember, omissions are often made in narratives. Because people try to push a certain narrative, they'll omit certain things that might shed a little bad light on the country or a little bad light onto their history. And it's not uncommon to find that history has been altered in some form slightly. Remember when I lived in the USA uh, for a couple of years, to my astonishment, I heard time and time again, and not to pick on our American friends here, but I heard time and time again how they won the War of 1812, which surprised me. I began, my mind began to race, and I began to think of Chief Tecumseh, and I began to think of Sir Isaac Brock, George Prevost, and Laura Secord, our heroes on the conflict. And I began to think, well, wait a second. It was the U.S. soldiers that crossed into Upper and Lower Canada, and we repelled the attacks, and then, out of spite, we decided to retaliate by going down and burning their White House. So, none of these lines of reasoning persuade me that among those wearing that sackcloth, that there weren't those who came to true faith in Yahweh. And this revival was noticeable. It was noticeable right up to the heights of power. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Perhaps you're like me, and one of the first words that I noticed as I looked at this verse was that word arose again. And that is the same word used throughout the whole book of Jonah. So ironically, when the message first came to Jonah and he heard arose, that call from the Lord, yeah, he arose and he ran. But not the king. The king does four things here. Look at the verse. He rises off the throne as soon as he hears the message. He removes his royal robe. 
He puts on the clothes of poverty, sackcloth, and he sits on a heap of ashes. His reaction is one of humility. You recall we we talked about the Beatitudes in Matthew in the fall. We read this from chapter 5 of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That concept of humility before God and understanding that we're spiritually bankrupt was a major theme in the Sermon on the Mount. He recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy and the king yields. The scene just drips with irony. We have a prophet of God who is reluctantly in Nineveh and then we have this pagan king who humbles himself, who yields to the one greater than he, who yields to Yahweh. But God's message doesn't stop there. Now, if anyone in Nineveh had not heard of Jonah or not heard of Jonah's message, they soon would. The king moves beyond his personal response to encourage repentance to all the citizens, all those who inhabited Nineveh. Look at verses 7 through 9. He issued a proclamation and published through, and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Just pause and think about that for a moment. That decree, that proclamation is extreme. No one is to eat fasting, including animals. No water, man or beast. Sackcloth was the fashion of the day, even for the animals. A call for a fervent prayer meeting. A change in behavior. Turn from your evil ways. And why? Perhaps God will relent. Perhaps God will change His mind about our destruction. I want to pause here. Repentance is a word that we've used a lot over the last few weeks. But do we understand what repentance means from a theological standpoint? See, in Hebrew, the word for repentance is teshuvah, which literally means to return as of turning back to something you strayed or looked away from. Right? You return back to. Much like when you're driving down some of the country roads and all of a sudden you see something happening in the field and you're off to that direction, 
Hopefully you're not one of those people that when you look, the car goes in the same direction. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, I, I need to be focused here. So the idea is to repent, is to turn your gaze back towards. In English, we tend to look at repentance from an emotional perspective as being sorry for what happened. But it's much deeper than that. What one Hebrew author stated this, instead of being simply a state of mind, it is a decision. It's deciding to turn away from where you were headed and moving back toward God. I'm never one to play on people's heartstrings when it comes to faith. When I talk about people coming to faith in Christ, when it comes to deciding to follow Christ, it's more than an emotion. Yes, there will be godly sorrow, which I believe is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, and a person's heart. That they need to understand sin and the separation it gives us from God. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the new covenant which you and I fall under, there needs to be a comprehension of sin and a desire to turn toward God. There must be a realization for a need of a Savior that we are spiritually bankrupt and hopelessly lost on our own. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And once we understand that Christ died on the cross to pay a debt that you and I could not pay, we simply need to have faith and lay hold of that gift. In Romans 5, verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A recognition that he paid it all. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So if you tell God you're a sinner, that you're sorry for your sin, and that you want Him to wash you, and to wash the sin away, and to give you new life. It's a couple of verses later in Romans, in verse chapter 10, 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, chapter 3 speaks of a wonderful God of mercy. A God who cares for his creation. Jew and Gentile alike. That is why Nineveh was such a great city to God. God cared for Nineveh and the people. And Nineveh needed God. And as reluctant as Jonah was to be used of God, as short as the message was to the citizens of Nineveh, God still used Jonah. He may have gone to Nineveh kicking and screaming, but God used Jonah. The people of Nineveh changed direction. They began to head towards God. And as they headed toward God, He changed their life. 
And he changed the trajectory of their lives. The big reveal now, what happened in the end? Well, verse 10. Did God have his set on these people? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster, and he said he would do that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We'll end there on a celebration note. The repentance of the Ninevites resulted in, in salvation of untold numbers of people, each an image bearer of God. We each of them now are a witness to God's grace and mercy, a testimony to his love for his creation. No matter how far we might wander from God, God's love, we can't outdistance it. We can't go beyond the point of where he will not reach out, where we can not be saved. For those who who have believed already, and have placed our faith and trusted in Christ, in the work on the cross for us, it's a lesson that we should never forget. And it's a story of gratefulness that needs to be told and shared to the world around us. It's in that story that will impact the world for the greatest. It's not in political statements. It's not in marching or writing MPPs. It's living out the gospel. It's living out the grace that God cares and that you cannot outrun him. It's showing people that God can work in their life if they will just yield and humbly come. Let's close our eyes. I'm just going to ask you with your eyes closed. If you have yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you are still separated and there's a, a gap between you and God because of sin, and you've never laid hold of that gift that it talks about in, in Romans of eternal life, of Christ dying on the cross for you, I ask that you'll think about it this morning. Jonah went to Nineveh with a message and God used that message to work in the hearts of the people and drew them to himself. And my prayer for you this morning is that God will draw him to you. And if you want to talk to somebody about what it means to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, please, if someone's brought you, talk with them or talk to one of the elders. Talk to myself. We'd love to share the love of Jesus Christ with you. Father, we thank you this morning for this time together. And we thank you that you are concerned with people. And as we look at all the craziness in the world around us, it is one giant mission field. And the only way that there will be lasting impact is for men and women to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The answer isn't in technology. The answer is not in how much entertainment I can get. The answer is not trying to find an identity in, in, in something different than what we are. The answer is to find our identity in Jesus Christ. That we were created, we bear your image, and that you sent your son to die on a cross to save us from our sins and to reconcile us with you. We thank you for that. 
we are so grateful for your love and your kindness in our lives. Father, we pray that we might have that impact here in Forest, in Lambton Shores, and through those that we support in missions around the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.